You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. In the spring of 1995, uh, anyone or everyone who was anyone at Oak Grove Middle School was wearing Doc Martin shoes and Tommy Hilfiger clothes. Does anybody remember the Doc Martin and Tommy Hill days? Okay, I see a girl that I was in class with at Oak Grove. It's like, oh yeah, I see you back there. And so, um, yeah, problem was I grew up in a home where we didn't have a whole lot of money. And so uh, the day that my parents... Uh, found a man selling Tommy Hilfiger shirts for $5 a piece on the side of the road was a day that I found what I thought was finally an opportunity for me to be plucked into the social scene at Oak Grove Middle School, to be able to sit at the cool kids' table. And so I will never forget, we pulled over. My mom bought three shirts for my brother. She bought three Tommy Hill shirts for me. And that next morning, I woke up, and I put on my favorite of the three. And I mean, Tommy Hill figures plastered across my chest. And, and I'll never forget that day because I thought that it was going to be a day that was going to change my life forever. Little did I know that it would change my life, but in a way that I'm still trying to recover from today. Because what happened is I walked out of my first period class, and I mean, my chest is out, you know, and I'm just like wanting everybody to see it, you know, like Tommy Hill. And, and uh, the popular kids kind of come up, and there's like four or five of them together, and one of them looks at me, and I'm waiting for him to be like, pick me, like, you're the man, come on, bro, like arm around me, like, let's do it. But instead, he looks at me and he says, dude, that's a fake Tommy Hill shirt. And I was like, no, 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 this is the real deal. See, Tommy Hill figure. And he's like, just look at the tag, bro. And so I look at the tag, and there in big, bold letters was the words, bell tone. He was right. It was a counterfeit shirt. It was a knockoff, an off-brand that had taken the Tommy Hill logo and ironed it on their little $5 t-shirt. And they began to say things about me in that moment. And I remember feeling so humiliated and so much shame. The things they were saying about who I was, I was beginning to believe. And, you know, I made a pact right then and there with myself that I will never again put myself in a situation where I will allow myself to be that humiliated by other people. And I look back at that now as almost a 35-year-old man, as a pastor of a church with three kids. And I think, you know, well, the past is the past. That has nothing to do with me anymore. But what I've discovered over the last couple years is how the truth is there are times where even as a 34-year-old man, I still function as that sixth-grade boy. Times where I walk into rooms, even rooms like this, and I let the perceptions of other people shape my perceptions of myself. And as a result of that, there are times where rather than walking in the freedom that is mine in Christ, I fall back into this exhausting cycle of trying to manage the perceptions of other people by projecting this image of myself that I think that you are going to like. And the whole reason I share all that is just to say this. What we believe about our identity, and a lot of times we receive this early on from our parents or from a teacher or for from some peers, what we believe about our identity, about who we are, for better or worse, has all sorts of ramifications in the kind of person we become and how we choose to live today. And therefore, what I would argue is that one of the key tasks in our discipleship to Jesus is discovering our true identity and calling. 
And I'm not alone, actually, in this. Um, Augustine, in 400 AD, in his famous book, Confessions, said the following. He says, how can you draw close to God when you're far off from your own self? And then he prayed this famous prayer, grant, Lord, that I may know myself so that I may know thee. In the 12th century, the famous German theologian, Messier Eckhart, said, no one can know God who does not first know himself. Around the same time, a scholar and the great martyr, St. Catherine, said, be who God meant you to be and you will set the world on fire. I love that quote. In the late 15th century, the Spanish mystic St. Teresa of Avila put it this way, almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. And if you're here and you're like, well, that's just a bunch of mystics or a bunch of Catholics, right? You think this is just like, kind of like a Catholic thing? Well, let me quote you John Calvin himself, who I know is a controversial figure here, but this guy is anything but a mystic or a Catholic, okay? And here's what he says. Without the knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Now, I could read more quotes, but here's just my point. For a millennia and a half, what we have is different people from different ends of the spectrum in different parts of the world at different points throughout history who have been saying the same thing. And here's what they've been saying. That discovering your God-given identity and calling is absolutely vital to being a healthy, vibrant, joy-filled disciple of Jesus Christ. And I think that, like, I mean, we know this is true, right? I mean, how many of you have seen spiritual leaders who started out well and they had passion and they had zeal and they had education and they had discipline, but because they were unaware of their shadow side, eventually they ran their faith off a cliff and took other people with them? Or just to kind of bring it closer to home, how many couples do you know who had so much potential to make a life together that their marriage ended before it really even got off the ground because they weren't aware of how much brokenness and baggage they brought into the marriage? Or to bring it even closer, how many parents do you know who have wounded their kids because they were unaware of their own wounds that they still carried as children? I think about the dad who yells at his kid because he can't throw a ball in a hoop. Um, I think about the mom who unintentionally uh, celebrates her, her daughter's outward beauty more than her inward beauty. Um, I think about parents who just don't know how to show up or be present when they're home. And they've always got to be busy and doing other stuff. And, you know, or they don't know how to handle conflict in a healthy way. And here's the point I'm just trying to make. Our self-awareness or lack of self-awareness has a profound impact in how we relate to God, how we relate to others, and how we relate to ourselves. And um, I can't think, therefore, of a better why behind this sermon series that we're launching than the words from Pete Scazzaro. And here's what he says. He says, the vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. That's a haunting line. The vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. He goes on and he says, we unconsciously live someone else's life or at least someone else's expectations for us. This does violence to ourselves, our relationship with God, and ultimately to others. So this series isn't really about discovering self-awareness. It's really about discovering the life that God has created you to experience. It's really about finally helping you experience a healthy relationship with God, a healthy relationship with others, and a healthy relationship with yourself. It's a series about helping you become the most sanctified version of you that you can be. And if you're a little skeptical about all this, you're like, I mean, where does this come from, man? It's like, well, it comes from the Bible, okay? So let's look together. There's a few places we're going to look today. We'll start in Matthew 3. Hopefully you're there. Matthew 3, starting in verse 13. I want you to read along with me. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. 
John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. The Spirit didn't, wasn't a dove, but like a dove. And coming to rest on Christ, and behold, look at this, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, New Testament scholars argue, and they, they ask themselves, like, hey, when did Jesus really become aware of his identity and calling? Like, when did Jesus really, like, discover, like, I am the Son of God, and I'm here to rescue the world? And some people will argue and say, well, at his birth. Like, that's whenever he knew it, right? Others will say, no, the Scripture's clear. He grew in stature and wisdom, so he didn't have all wisdom at the beginning. Uh, some will say it was whenever he was 12 years old, right? If you know that story, uh, Jesus' parents, uh, earthly parents, Mary and uh, Joseph, lost him. And so, like, they eventually find him in the temple, and they're like, where have you been? And he says, don't you know, I must be about my father's business. So some say it was whenever he was 12, and then some argue it's right here at this point. And it doesn't really matter where you land in the argument. What all scholars agree on is this, is that this moment when Jesus comes out of the water is a key moment in his life where he is rooted in his God-given, God-given identity. Right? He's baptized, he comes out of the water, the clouds open up, and from the sky God declares, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And we read that thousands of years later, and we're like, what's the big idea? We know, like, God the Father, God the Son, right, all of it. But what you have to understand is this is a statement right here. When Jesus comes out of the water, this is a statement about his very identity and calling. It's a pronouncement about who he is, and it absolutely would shape how he lived. And Satan knows how big of a deal this is. That's why if you read, if you look in Matthew chapter 4, just kind of skip down like an inch, Matthew 4, verse 1, look what happens next. Jesus receives his identity, and when he receives his identity from the Father, immediately he begins his ministry. This is the initiation of Jesus' ministry. And it says in chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's a pretty weird verse, by the way, isn't it? I'm not going to talk about it this morning, but you can go research it later. Verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry, right? Who wouldn't be? And the tempter, look at this, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. What did the Father just say to Jesus? You are what? My beloved Son. Where does Satan decide he wants to attack Jesus because he knows if he can attack him there, he can derail his ministry? Are you really the Son of God? Are you really who God says that you are? Listen, guys, that is the same thing that that Satan is trying to do Every single day in your ear. He knows that if he can get you to believe a lie about who God says that you are, then he's got you. He will derail you from living the life that God has called you to live. He says, are you really who God says that you are? And then he says to him, verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the mountain and said to him, look, here it is again, verse 6, If you are the Son of God... If you are who God the Father says you are, throw yourself down, for it is written. And right here, Satan quotes the Bible. It's pretty crazy. And he quotes Isaiah. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, let you strike your foot, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Verse 7, Jesus said again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to your test. So he says, I see you, Isaiah. I raise you, Deuteronomy. Right? He quotes the Bible back to him. 
Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give to you if you'll just fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall, not wor- you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and they began to minister to Jesus. Notice in this story when Jesus is tempted by the devil, the way that Satan tries to derail God's calling is not with drugs, sex, and rock and roll. But the way that he tries to tempt him is by getting Jesus to hand over his identity that God the Father has already handed to him. And he knows that if he can do the same thing for you and me, then he will derail us. Right? Again, our identity, incredibly important. Um, let me show you another story. John chapter 1. If you will, turn there with me. John chapter 1. I would encourage you, if you don't have a physical Bible, let us buy you one. Church is less boring when you have a physical Bible in your hands. That's my pitch to, to, to get you one. Bring it with you. If you don't have one, though, that's fine. Use your app if you want to scroll. That's cool. We can put it on the screen for you, I think. John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. It says, and this is the testimony of John. John 1, verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Notice the question of your identity. Who are you? John confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He said, No. So they answered them, Well, who are you? Right? What is your identity? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said this, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Verse 25, they asked him, Then why are you baptizing? If you were neither the Christ or Elijah or the prophet, John answered, I baptize with water. But among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And then these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Notice in this story, John is crystal clear on who he is and who he isn't. And therefore, he understands what he's been called to do, and he understands what he's not been called to do. Both of those are very important in understanding your identity and calling. In here, we see three times, right? We see three no's to one yes. Are you Christ? Nope. Are you Elijah? Nope. Are you a prophet? Eh, you know, I'm tempted to say yes because prophets are kind of cool, but no, I am certainly not a prophet. Well, then who are you? Verse 23, I'll tell you who I am. I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And therefore, because I know that's who I am, that's how I live. I give my life through baptism and teaching to make straight the way to point to Jesus Christ. So again, what do we see here? Because John has a firm grasp on his identity, because he knows who he is and who he isn't, he absolutely fulfills God's call in his life. In fact, Jesus says to him, or says about him, there has been none greater born of woman than John the Baptist. He understood his identity. One more place, I'll have you look, and then we'll move on. Matthew 16, Matthew chapter 16, if you will, flip over there. Matthew 16, I'm going to start in verse 13. Matthew 16, start in verse 13. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So they're really confused now, okay? He said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, I love it. He always talks without thinking. And sometimes it's like hit or miss. Sometimes it's brilliant. Sometimes it's awful. But he's just like, I'll talk. Nobody else is going to talk. 
Who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Father who is in heaven. And then look at this, verse 18. This is like where Catholics and Protestants just kind of split. It's like on this verse right here, verse 18. So much conflict over verse 18. Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I'm not here to get into the debate of Catholic, Protestant, all that. If you wanted that debate, you should have come to Andy Runyon's lectures on Rome and the church the last couple of weeks. But here's the point I want to make. Notice in here, in verse 18, Jesus says to Peter, because you know who I am, right? Peter said, you are the son of the living God. You are the Christ. Jesus says, because you know who I am, Peter, I'm now going to tell you who you are. And who does he say that Peter is? He says, you are Peter. Literally in the Greek, it's the word Petros, which means you are the rock. Peter's like the original Dwayne the Rock Johnson. He says, you are the rock. And because of your profession of faith, he says, on you, I am going to build my church. And so Jesus instills in Peter this new identity. And as a result, what happens? Eventually, Peter becomes the leader of the 12, and then he becomes the leader of the very first church. And so here are three examples. You have Jesus, you have Peter, you have John, right? And I can share with you literally hundreds of more. But all I want you to see is one thing that all three of these men had in common is they came to a place in their life, wherever you want to say that place was, where they absolutely realized who they were and that therefore shaped how they live. And therefore, in light of all that, listen, here's what I want to say. If you're going to experience the life that God has created you to experience, the same must be true of you and me. We must come to a place, if we want to be healthy disciples of Jesus, if we want to be the best, most God-glorifying version of ourselves that we can be, we must come to a place where we discover and embrace our God-given identity. And for most of us, listen, this is a process, not an event. Yes, there are key moments in our journey where we will have times like we see in these stories where we'll have you know, maybe these unique situations we'll understand even more about who we are But what we have to see is this process, this journey of embracing and discovering our identity is just that. It is a journey, and it's a journey that often will take a lifetime. And to help you kind of wrap your minds around this, we're going to put, I'm going to put a little framework on the screen for you. This, um, this is a work adapted by Robert Clinton a fuller seminary. And basically what he did is he did an exhaustive study of a thousand different characters throughout the Bible and church history who he felt like had discovered and embraced their identity and lived the life God had called them to live. And what he wanted to know in his study is, was there a pattern in these people's lives who truly lived God honoring, glorifying lives where they knew who they were and they embraced their identity and calling? And what he found out is, yes, there absolutely is a pattern. And the pattern that you see on the screen is what he came up with. And the first thing that he said is that when it comes to discovering your identity and calling, you have to go through the stage of what he calls sacred foundations. This is, according to Clinton, the family that you are born into and the options that either gives you or doesn't give you. Okay, this is your gender, this is your Myers-Briggs type, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, right? This was the year you were born and the culture you were born into. Like, clearly, if you're like me and you're born in 1983... And you're growing up listening to Oasis and the Wallflowers and Smashing Pumpkins, right? You're going to be different than if you're born in 2003. And if you're born in Paragould, Arkansas, you're going to be a little bit different than if you're born in Portland, Oregon. And so all of this, he says, plays into uh, effect. All of these are like signposts and the sacred foundations that point you towards 
who you believe you are and how you end up living your life. He then goes on and he says there's stage two of discovering and embracing your identity. And this is a stage where he calls discovery. And this is where you have a revelation where you kind of begin to understand really who God is, what he's done for you in Christ, and how that shapes who you are and how you're called to live. This is a stage where it's filled with a lot of learning and unlearning, where you find out what you're good at and what you're not good at. I think about my son, Wyatt, who just last night looked at me, and he said, Dad, I'm the fastest runner in Paragold, right? <laughs> and I was like, well, son, you know, you, did, you finished next to last in the, in the tech run. And so, uh, you know, some of you, you may, you may think, oh, you're an awful parent. I'll tell you what's awful. This is, has nothing to do with the sermon, but let me just say this. Maybe I'm trying to justify myself. <laughs> what's awful is that in our country, we'll tell a kid who's five foot tall and 100 pounds that you can be anything you want, even if it's an NFL defensive lineman. It's like, no, you can't. There is no way you can, no matter how hard you try or how big you dream. If you're five foot tall and you're 100 pounds, you're not going to be a defensive lineman in the NFL. You set your kid up to fail, right? And so it's like... I'm all about dreaming big with our kids, but I'm also about helping them discover what they really are good at and what they're not good at, okay? And so, like, that's really what this stage is about. You discover what you're good at, what you're not good at, right? This is a messy stage. We wrestle with questions, like, through the Myers-Briggs personality test. You go to things like the Enneagram workshop, which if you have not signed up for, I would encourage you to do that. There's limited space. It's $10 for non-members, free for members, uh, right, this is where you begin to wrestle through all that. You practice the spiritual disciplines, and as these things are happening, you begin to get a firmer grasp of who you are and what you're called to do, and that moves you into the next stage. And it's a stage of stepping out. It's a stage of going for it. This is when you enroll in that school. This is whenever you ask that girl out, or you start that business, or you plant that church, or you have that child, right? And then as you stay at it, you have the fourth stage. And it's the stage of getting good. This is the stage of Malcolm Gladwell made famous where he talked about how it takes 10,000 hours to get good at anything in our lives, uh, whether that's marketing or preaching or parenting, right? His point is it takes time to get good at that thing that God has called you to do. And this is why parenting is so frustrating, right? Because it's like just about the time that you get your kids, like you get like good at parenting, they're 18 years old and you send them off to college and it's like too late now, I've already screwed them up, you know? It's like here's all of your baggage, and so the point is in this stage, he says, man, it just takes time to get good at that thing that God has called you to do. And then there's this thing in the middle called the wall. And this isn't really a stage because it can happen at any time in your journey. And it can happen multiple times. And basically, this is where you have some kind of crisis. This is a point where you basically begin to question your identity and calling, where you go through some suffering. And here's what I just want to encourage you with today. Listen, when you hit the wall, and we all hit the wall in our journey, if you will continue to trust Jesus in these moments, your identity will not be wrecked, but refined. God will use these moments in ways to make you more and more and more into the image of Jesus. And tragically, listen, a lot of us, guys, please hear this. A lot of us hit the wall, and you know what happens? We turn back. We hit the wall and we blame God or we hit the wall and we just say, you know what, I can't go forward anymore. But listen, guys, when you hit the wall, when you have that moment of crisis, when you encounter the suffering, if you will hang with God through it, if you will not give up in your doubt and darkness and confusion of God, where are you in all of this? If you will hang in there, you will actually come out more conformed into the image of Jesus. 
Yes, you might be beat up a little bit. Yes, you might be embarrassed, but you will be humbled and you'll be more dependent on God than ever before. And as a result of that, you will be able to experience a deeper sense of joy and confidence and wisdom and freedom as a result. And again, this can come at any time in your journey. It can come multiple times. I know I've experienced that at least once in my life, uh, maybe twice. And I'll tell you this, both times it was grueling. Both times it was gut-wrenching, it was brutal. I would have never signed up for it, but looking back at it, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And so that's the wall. Then you move into the fifth stage, which is the staying faithful and fruitful stage. And this is a stage where, listen, guys, the honeymoon's over. It's over. Odds are, when you go into this stage, you're probably at the earliest in your late 30s, 40s, maybe 50s. And this is where you learn how to deal with disappointment. This is where you begin to go through the daily grind. I mean, you're certainly settled into your career. You're paying a mortgage. I mean, you're getting your kids here. You're running them there. I mean, you're in just kind of the routine stuff of life. You've experienced your fair share of letdowns. You've been knocked around a little bit. You maybe are dealing with some fatigue. But if you will continue to remain faithful, if you will continue to learn how to measure success in this life, listen to me, guys, not based off of how America tells you what success is, which is a bigger bank account, tighter abs, and shinier trophies, right? But in this stage, if you will learn how to measure success based off of what God says is success, if you will remain faithful, here's what you'll discover, and this is beautiful to me. You'll discover that your 40s are actually more fruitful than your 30s, and your 50s are more fruitful than your 40s, and your 60s are more fruitful. I mean, you get the point. I think of the, uh, uh, Psalm 92 where it talks about the palm tree. You'll be like the palm tree that actually bears more fruit the older that you get. Um, I think about my dad. I brought his Bible up here because I just wanted you to see this. My dad gave me this a couple years ago. There's no way that I'm sure you'll be able to see it. But, I mean, can you see that from where you are? I mean, his pages literally are, are falling out of it. Uh, I've been so blessed, not to grow up with a perfect father, but with a father who's been faithful and running after Jesus. And I was thinking about this. I was talking to Megan about it on the way over here. In 2009, which is the year we got married, my dad got diagnosed with cancer for the fifth time. And this time it had mutated into a different form. They had no idea what to do. They told us it didn't look good. They had to go to Mayo Clinic, all this kind of stuff to figure out what in the world was going on. Fifth time cancer had come back. Within a few months of getting cancer, his mom died, his dad died, his father-in-law died. Uh, all this stuff, man. And I just, I'm just telling you, like, in the midst of all of that, I just watched as my dad remain so faithful and so filled with joy. Just quietly... You know, not on a stage or not getting his name in a book. And they're just quietly following Jesus and trusting Jesus. And as a result, he's been a man who continues to produce more fruit in his life. I think about guys like Ray Ortland, who's a pastor in Nashville that I follow. I love Ray Ortland. He's become like a spiritual father to many church planters. And there was an article Christianity Today did about him recently. I think he's in his late 60s. And he made the comment in this article. He said he believes with all of his heart that the 70s are going to be him and his wife's best years ever. Most fruitful years ever. And I look at that, man, I don't know about you, but I'm like, man, like, I so want that to be true of me. I so want that to be true of me. And, 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 you know, here's the thing, guys, it absolutely can. You can experience a lifetime of fruitfulness. But listen, we will never experience a life of fruitfulness apart from a life of faithfulness. And that is why we were just in this room earlier this week, me and Adam and Luke, and, and we, we come in here and we pray over you guys, man. Every single week we pray for y'all. It's the most important thing we can do as pastors because I can't preach and change your heart or even get you to pay attention or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, the Spirit has to do that. And so we pray for you guys. And, and this week I told Adam and Luke, I said, I'm becoming more and more convinced that my job as a pastor is just to try to help you grow your spiritual muscles so that you have the stamina to keep doing the right thing when no one else is looking while everyone else is tapping out. 
I'm becoming convinced of that because the truth is, guys, listen, you want to experience a fruitful life that you were created to experience. You want to be the man or the woman that you long to be. It does not take a special gifting, but it does take, as Eugene Peterson calls it, a long obedience in the same direction. The sixth stage that Clinton talks about is the stage of ending well. And these are people who actually begin to live with the end in mind. These are people who know their years are probably short. You know, the bulk of their life is behind them. And as a result of that, these are people who aren't spending their life just collecting seashells on a beach. They're not just sitting on a fishing boat, right? Not that anything's wrong with either one of those things. But these are people who are actually more concerned about eternal investments than their financial investments. These are people who are still learning, still growing, still submitting their life to Christ, still taking risks, still engaging in the spiritual disciplines. And as a result of that, eventually you move into the final stage. And I'd say very few people ever get here. And it's a stage of what Clinton calls the afterglow. These are the people who, like the Apostle Paul, can say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Race might not have been perfect, right? But I knew exactly, exactly who I was and what God had called me to do. And therefore, I ran. I ran. And I think, you know, what this looks like is typically, I mean, people that are in the afterglow stage, they're probably 75, 80 plus years old. And the way I envision my life at that point is I'll be sitting on the front porch with a cup of coffee, with my wife, watching birds. Because what else can you really do at that point, you know? (laughs) And maybe tinkering in the garden a little bit or, you know, playing with my grandkids. And I probably won't remember their names, but like, I I will enjoy them and they'll enjoy me. And I hope I'm not like some sort of creepy old man. Like I'm like a man that like literally like younger people want to come. And I'm like the sage where it's like they ask me all sorts of wisdom about life. Like that's what I long for, man. I long for this life. I mean, this is the Eugene Petersons of the world. This is the Dallas Willards of the world before he died. I think about Moses. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Moses in Deuteronomy 34 says, When he came to the end of his life, his eyes were not dimmed and his vigor unabated. How awesome is that? Unfortunately, few people ever get there. But listen, guys, not only is this life possible, it's God's will for your life. In John 15, Jesus says it is God's will that you will bear fruit in your life even as you get older. And so here's my hope is as we continue immersing ourselves in God's teaching and being reminded who he is and what he's done and how that shapes who we are and how we live as we continue to not just absorb information but practice the ways of Jesus in the context of community through the power of the Spirit that we will experience this life. And again, the main thing I'm just want to communicate this morning is keep in mind that this journey of self-discovery, of knowing who you are and not of who God says you are, again, it's a journey. Okay? So, so don't like think like, oh yeah, our church did this eight-week series, series on discovering our identity and calling. Like, bam, I went to every single one of them, now I've arrived. Right? Like, it's not going to happen that way. Like, this is a journey. It's a long and difficult and messy and yet really beautiful journey that Jesus is inviting each of us to go on. And as One of your pastors, listen, guys, my hope is to see every single one of you say, I'm all in on joining Jesus in this journey. I'm all in. Because the truth is, you know what? We can't take that journey for you. I can give you a compass, right? We can give you a backpack with tools, but it is up to you to decide, do I want to go on this journey with Jesus in community through the power of the Spirit? And to kind of help you go there, for those that are like, yes, I'm in, here's what we're going to do. Every single week, and we do this in a series every now and then, we call it kind of a practicing the way series, where we pick a discipline from Jesus' life, and we practice it together in a community. And what we're going to do in this series is we're going to give you assignments every single week, 
where you can basically work through it and apply what you're learning in the context of your uh, missional communities and fight clubs. And I know tonight's a Super Bowl, and we're not going to probably have any discussions over this tonight. I'm realistic, and so I know my missional community will not be. We'll be eating jalapeno poppers and things like that and, and watching football, or at least pretending to watch football. And so, um, but here's what I want you to do. We're not going to have a discussion around this tonight in our missional communities, but... Um, if you will go to your app, you don't have to do it right now, but on your app, on the little front page when you open it up, there is going to be a section that says Discovering Your Identity and Calling. You click on that. Every single week, you'll find your assignment. And this week, here's the assignment. Look at the screen right here. The assignment this week is to plot yourself on this timeline. To be realistic and ask yourself, like, where am I right now? Am I in discovery stage still as a 50-year-old or 60-year-old? I mean, just be honest, Right? Am I in the stepping out stage? Am I in the getting good stage? Like, where am I staying faithful and fruitful? Like, ask yourself that. And then there's going to be four questions on there specifically that I want you to answer. Take time to do that, guys, this week. Think about this. Listen, I promise we're coming in for a landing. We plan for everything. You plan for your weddings. You plan for vacations. I think one of Satan's greatest tools is to keep you from planning your life. Slow down, everybody. Slow down. Take time to look at things like this and, and, and answer the questions. And then here's what I want you to do. Dialogue with your missional community, your fight club about this. And then pray for one another. Pray, man. Like if there's, if there's something, if you're in the discovery stage still, hey, man, no guilt, no shame. But that's where you are. Like, and you, you know, you're 40 and like, I'm, still, I'm trying to figure that out. I, don't, I still don't know who I am. Right? Then, 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 hey, that's fine, man. Share that with your missional community. Say, here's what I think the obstacles are to get into the next stage and have them pray for you. And with you for that, that God will help you remove those obstacles, right? So that you can grow more and more into the man or the woman God's created you to be. Does that make sense? So here's how I want to end. Uh, I want to end with just a really short story. I will be done today. Um, this is about a man by the name of Rabbi Azusa, uh, who's been long gone now. But, but before he died, he was on his deathbed. He said he began to get more and more nervous about meeting God. And he said the reason he got nervous is because he really felt like that whenever he stood before God, he was going to say, why couldn't you be more like Moses? Or why couldn't you be more like David? Or more like one of these big heroes of the faith? And he said, man, he just felt a lot, started feeling a lot of fear over that. And so he just started taking it to the Lord in the twilight of his life, taking it to God. He said immediately he felt a peace from God. And he said, I begin to realize that whenever I stand before God, that's not what's going to be asked of me. But instead, and I'll put this on the screen for you if I think we have it. He said, he became convinced that in the coming world, he said, they will not ask me, why were you not Moses? But instead, he said, they were going to ask me, why were you not Zuzia? And what he means by that is this. Guys, when you come to the end of your life, when you come to the end of your life, you're not going to be asked, like, hey, why were you not more like Adam Breckenridge or, or Darius, who was the life of the party, or why were you not more like Moses or whatever hero of the faith, Matt Chandler, but the main thing is you're going to be asked is, why were you not more of you? And I don't mean that in like a millennial, like, hey, you do you, buddy, right? Like, not like that, not like the broken version of you. But why were you not the more sanctified version of you that I created you specifically to be for your good, the good of the world, and my glory? And I just want you to know, our hope, um, I promise, I've done like two minutes, okay? My hope and our hope as pastors is to help you become the you God created you to be. Like, that's why we do what we do. Do you realize today, listen, hear this. If you fell asleep, if the person's asleep next to you, wake them up. Listen, you really are not an accident. 
You have been fearfully and wonderfully made by the God of the universe. Psalm 139 says that God has ordained all of the days of your life before you were even a thought in your mother's mind. Or in the words of Ephesians, God has laid specific works on your hands to do before time began. That's the Bible. That's God speaking. And therefore, listen, this series is not ultimately, in light of that, about discovering your identity and calling. It's about discovering and embracing your God-given destiny. And I don't know about you, but I'm excited about that. I want to go on that journey.